I want to go over the song one more time and see if you guys can remember it with me. So come on, stand up. Craig, go ahead and bring the <coughs> bring the video up. But don't turn it up. Don't don't start it yet. I want to review the words. Turn it off, turn it off, turn it off. Hit escape. Okay, never mind. Love the Lord your God with Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Ready again. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Perfect. You guys are doing great. The audience is not, but they'll get it eventually. You guys go ahead and sit down. How many of you guys have ever played the game Simon Says? Have you guys played it before? All right. Stand up over there. Actually, no, you guys stand right here because you're not, you don't have to move any place. So just stand still. Now, what are the rules for Simon Says? Shh. What are the rules for Simon Says? Only do what the person says. That's right. What happens if you say, uh, Audrey, what happens if I don't say Simon Says, but I, have, I say do this and you do it? You lose, you sit down. And then the last person standing is the winner of the game, right? All right. Are you going to be Simon? No. Okay. All right. So Simon says, put your head behind your back. Put your heads behind your back. There you go. Simon says, put your hands on your head. Simon says, put your hands on your shoulder. Put your hands on your head. Ah, I got you. I kicked you. I'm sorry. You get to sit down. Okay, keep your hands on your shoulder. Keep your hands on your shoulder. Simon says, put your hands down. Simon says, pick up this foot. That's right. Simon says, you can put it down because it's hard to stand up like that. Simon says, turn towards the windows. Simon says, face me. Simon says, turn around and face the congregation. Now face back to me. Ah, I didn't say Simon says. Simon says, turn back and say to me. Okay, this one's going to get harder because these two have been, have been not making any mistakes. Simon says, clap your hands. Simon says, keep clapping your hands. Simon says, keep clapping your hands. Stop. Ah! You are the winner, Shane! Woo-hoo! Oh, then you lose too. Sit down, sit down. Nobody wins. Woo-hoo! It's hard, isn't it? Well, we can play it later on. What happened? What? Oh, I'm it again. That's right. Well, we're only going to do it the one time this morning. But I want to teach you guys something. There's something in the Bible that talks about something like Simon says. You know what it is? God says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. That's what it says in the Bible. And how do we know our commandments? Because God says them to us. So, if God says something to you, you're supposed to do it. Yes, ma'am. How do you hear Jesus? You can hear Jesus sometimes through reading the Bible. 
You can hear Jesus sometimes when you're praying. Sometimes he actually whispers things to you, and maybe you hear him inside. Sometimes maybe it's even possible to hear him talk to you. It just depends on the person. Sometimes you can be walking through the trees and God can talk to you. Yes, sir. Ma'am. You know what? In the Bible, there was a boy named Samuel. That's what happened to him. God was talking to him when he was trying to sleep. That would be cool if God was talking to you in your, in your dreams. I think it's cool. And that's the thing is when God talks to us, we need to listen and do what God says. Because that's what shows that we love God. If we love God, we should do what God says. Now, sometimes... The enemy of our soul tries to get us to do things that are not what God wants. And we need to learn to the difference between when God says to do it and when the enemy of our soul is trying to trick us and make us do something. Kind of like Simon says, if God said to do it, you do it. If God didn't say it, you don't do it. Okay? All right. Yes, sir. That's kind of like that. Yeah. When, it, when you in the game, when you say Simon says, then that would be like God talking to you. And when, it, when you don't say Simon says, that's kind of like the enemy trying to trick you to do something you shouldn't do. Exactly, exactly. Well, I want to pray with you guys and ask that God would help you to learn to hear his voice, even, when, even if you're sleeping and having dreams. But let's pray. Father God, bless these kids. Help them to learn to hear your voice and to recognize it. Help them to show their love for you by obeying your voice. And Father, protect them so that the enemy doesn't have opportunity to cause tricks or harm in their life. Bless them now in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay. Um, I don't think we have a teacher this morning, do we? We do? Ah, okay. Cool. Ah. Sometimes, depending on technology, is amazing, wonderful, glorious. Sometimes, not so much. All right. A number of years ago, and I don't remember what year it was, but Cheyenne was a little kid. So it was a number of years ago. And we were going, we were, it was when Jesse and Becky Bratwood were here. And we were driving a Suburban that the church owned to take the kids down to camp. And it was the year that Elsie's cousin, Marilyn, was the guest speaker at the camp. So Elsie had gone down to volunteer volunteer at the camp so she could interface with her, her, her cousin. But she did with a lot of work at the camp. Um, and Melody Johnston brought Hadassah with her to go down to camp. So Melody went down with her kids. They were coming from a different church, and then there was us. And we're driving. Now, how many of you guys have driven the Parks Highway? You, you've been on the Parks Highway. You've gone south of Cantwell. You're into the Mountain Pass area. And from Cantwell, which is around mile 211, 210, until 188 is where the igloo is, okay? So that, that stretch of, of road from 211 down to 188 is relatively flat, but it's very curvy. Um, and around mile 198, I was driving down the road, and it was straight, but 
starting to curve. And all of a sudden, I was being pulled, violently pulled, to go into the other lane. And I had to fight to get us off onto the shoulder. Well, what had happened was the driver's side front tire had blown. And literally, we got off the, onto the shoulder safely, got the kids out of the vehicle. Elsie took responsibility for the kids, and I lost my man card. <laughs> Do you know what LuLaRoe leggings are? Melody was wearing a, a long blouse with lo- yellow, goldenrod-colored LuLaRoe leggings. And she also used to work for Jiffy Lube and Walmart Tire Center. And she said, I got this. I'm like, no, I, guess, no, I got this, Pastor. You, 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 oh, okay. People took pictures and video and put it on Facebook. I lost my man card. <laughs> so here, I'm standing in the middle of nowhere. We are disabled. We almost got taken out. Because there was a vehicle coming, and it took everything to get us out of the way, harm's way and off the side of the road. Then Melody shames me and does, the, does all the work. And while that's going on, Elsie's over there caring for the kids and making sure that they're safe. Well, towards the end, as we're getting things back and getting ready to load back up, Elsie says, come here, come here, I want to show you what we did. And she had taught the children to build an Ebenezer. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Okay. What do you think is an Ebenezer? It's a pile of rocks. But it's not just a pile of gravel rocks. It's actually like you stack rocks one on top of the other. And there's a reason you do this. The word Ebenezer, when it's, when it's done in this way, it's always capitalized. The letter E is always capitalized at the beginning of the word. And an Ebenezer is a memorial stone or a stack of stones placed in, mem- in memory or in commemoration of God working in your life on that spot. And it literally means, Ebenezer means, stone of my help. So it means God came to our aid and we are erecting this stone, this Ebenezer, as a, as a memorial to what God did for us. Now, that was at mile, between mile 198 and 197. Every time since then, I drive by 198 to 197, and I'm always looking to see if it might still be there. I'm sure it's not. It was just this pile of rocks that they did. But I've tried. I, one time I was successful. One time there was nobody coming, and I pulled off to the side of the road and actually got out and looked at it, and I was like, thank you, Jesus. And then got back in the car and kept driving. But it is a place. But it's a marker at a place so that you can remember what God did for you back then, at that time, at that place. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 7. Now this morning I'm going to be reading pretty exclusively out of the uh, New Living Translation, just because I like the way it's phrased in a lot of this. But 1 Samuel chapter 7, if you'll remember last week, we talked about the fact that the, uh, the Philistines who had captured the Ark of the Covenant back in chapter 4 were now returning the Ark of the Covenant to the Israelites because they didn't like having God in their life. 
There was a lot of hemorrhoids and boils and rodents. A lot of problems. And they needed to get the problems gone because their god, Dagon, was not strong enough to fight against the god of the Israelites. So they brought the ark back, if you remember that, and it came to uh, the area called Kiriath Jerim, and it was there for 20 plus years. And then finally, Acts chapter, Acts, 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3, Samuel is now an adult. Samuel was a little boy when we first met him. He learned how to hear God's voice, and then Eli dies, and then Samuel then takes over as the prophet. And so this is the story of Samuel coming into his ministry as the prophet of Israel. So Samuel chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3 and following. Then Samuel said to all the people of Israel, If you want to return to the Lord with all your hearts, get rid of your foreign gods and your images of Ashtoreth, turn your hearts to the Lord and obey him alone. Then he will rescue you from the Philistines. So the Israelites got rid of their images of Baal and Ashtoreth and worshipped only the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. Then Samuel told them, gather all of Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. And I will pray to the, yeah, I'll pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, and in a great ceremony, they drew water from a well and poured it out before the Lord. They also went without food all day, and they confessed that they had sinned against the Lord. It was at Mizpah that Samuel became Israel's judge. Then the Philistine rulers heard that Israel had gathered at Mizpah, and they mobilized their army in advance. And the Israelites were badly frightened when they learned that the Philistines were approaching. Don't stop pleading with the Lord our God to save us from the Philistines, they begged Samuel. So Samuel took a young lamb and offered it to the Lord as a, burnt, a whole burnt offering. He pleaded with the Lord to help Israel, and the Lord answered him. Just as Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines arrived to attack Israel. But the Lord spoke with a mighty voice of thunder from heaven that day, and the Philistines were thrown uh, into such a confusion that the Israelites defeated them. The men of Israel chased them from Mizpah to a place below beth Car, slaughtering them along the way. And Samuel took a large stone and placed it between the towns of Mizpah and Jeshanah, and he named it Ebenezer, which means the stone of help. For he said, up to this point, the Lord has helped us. Now, some key things to understand, and then we're going to talk about what this Ebenezer thing is. First of all, if you go back to, the, to verse 3 and 4, there is a declaration from Samuel that, to the people. He says, if you want to turn back to God, then you need to clean up your act. You need to get rid of anything that is false, anything that you've been worshiping that, wasn't, that takes away your worship for the true one true God. And so they told him, I mean, excuse me, then, then Samuel said, and once you've done that, then all of you gather at Mizpah, and I'll pray to the Lord for you. So they did. They gathered at Mizpah, and in a great ceremony, it says, verse 6, they drew water from a well and poured it out before the Lord. And scholars are pretty convinced that really what that's talking about, that it is a physical act. They literally took water and they poured it out before the Lord. But what it was, if you go and read various passages of Scripture, which we don't have time this morning to do, 
you will see that there is a, there's a, a spiritual thing going on, that they are pouring out their soul before God as if pouring water on the ground. It's, oh God, oh God, oh God, please. We I'm, I'm, I'm just releasing everything of me to you, oh God. I'm pouring out everything, God. That's what we are seeing in this physical act of pouring water on the ground. Then it says, um, they, can, they went without food all day. Well, they fasted. That's, again, a sacrifice that they made. And they confessed that they had sinned. So they, they came before God in an attitude of repentance and confession and pouring out and self-sacrifice. And then all of a sudden, the Philistine rulers heard that all of Israel had gathered at Mizpah. Now, we don't know the timeline because we're not told the timeline. But it sounds like this went on for a while, a number of days. And it, it was enough time for the Philistines to learn that they had gathered, that they were staying there, that they were doing something there. And the Philistine leaders then gathered up their troops and marched to Mizpah. And Israel, it says, when they mobilized their army and they advanced, the Israelites were badly frightened when they learned that the Philistines were approaching. Why would they be so afraid? What had happened nearly 20 years earlier? The Ark of the Covenant had been taken from them. They had lost their access to God, and they were slaughtered. If you remember, sometimes the scripture that we were reading said some of it said 20,000, some of it said 50,000. We really don't know how many. Just there was a great loss of life because the Philistines were overpowering the Israelites. And so all of a sudden, they're facing the same thing again. Here they're trying to get their life right with God and to worship God and to honor God. And all of a sudden their enemy is coming to them again. And they're like, ah! And they scream out to Samuel, Don't stop pleading to the Lord our God to save us from the Philistines. Verse 9. So Samuel took a young lamb and offered it to the Lord as a whole burnt offering. A side note. Samuel's not a priest. He doesn't have the authority to do this. Scholars believe that Samuel said to the priest, offer this. He was the leader. He had the right, just like any, it says Solomon offered, David offered. So Samuel was telling the priest, sacrifice. He pleaded with the Lord to help Israel, and the Lord answered Samuel. Just as the sacrifice, uh, sacrificial offering was being offered, the Philistines arrived to attack Israel. And hear what happened. What happened the last time? The last time the Ark of the Covenant was captured, Phineas and Hopni, the priests who were monitoring and managing the Ark, were killed. Thousands of the Israelites were killed, and the Ark of the Covenant was stolen and brought back to the Philistines. What happens this time? Verse 10. Just as Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines arrived to attack Israel. But the Lord spoke with a mighty voice of thunder from heaven that day. And the Philistines were thrown into such confusion that the Israelites defeated them. Now, scholars, as I was reading it, said it is believed that this thundering voice was lightning and thunder. So imagine, they are gathered at a relatively high place called Mizpah to do an offering and to make prayers to God. And God's response when the enemy comes is, lightning and people when they get hit by lightning explode and burn 
So it says the Philistines, who see this massive display of God, all of a sudden are freaked out and run. And the Israelites go, they're running. Let's go kill them. And so they do. The men of Israel chase them from that place, Mizpah, all the way to a place called Bethkar, which we don't know where Bethkar is anymore. And he said, slaughtering them all the way. And then Samuel sets up this Ebenezer. Now, there are only three times in the whole Bible that the word Ebenezer is used. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. So the word Ebenezer is only used to describe this place. Now, if you turn to Samuel chapter 4, verse 1 and following, it says, now just remember this is 20 plus years before this happening with God thundering and the Philistines running and Saul, I mean Samuel erecting this Ebenezer. It says, this took place at Ebenezer. And if you recall, a couple, year, a couple weeks ago when I preached on this, I said it wasn't called Ebenezer when this took place, but they have since named it Ebenezer, and that's why the author of this chapter is referring to the place as Ebenezer. Okay? If you recall that, I don't know if you do or not, because that was an incidental story. But then at chapter 5, verse 1, same thing. It says that they were at Ebenezer when the ark was taken. Again, Ebenezer was not the name of the place at the time because it was 20 years later that Samuel erected this stone of help, this Ebenezer. But these are the only three times in the whole Bible that the word Ebenezer is used. Now, to discover what happened at that place, compare what we just did. Compare Samuel 5.1 with Samuel 7.1 through 13. The difference was, that they trusted God. The difference was that they humbled themselves before God. The difference was that they sacrificed before God. The difference was that they confessed their sins before God. If you recall, back when Samuel, 1 Samuel 4 through 5, there was an arrogance. If you recall, I remember, if you recall when I preached, I talked about they were using God like an amulet or a lucky charm. Oh, we're being defeated. Let's go get the ark. That's like hanging crosses in your house. Trying to keep the enemy away. And you can't, you can't manipulate God like that. I said that a few weeks ago. Well, the difference here is they weren't using God as, a, as a, a lucky charm. They weren't setting up, saying, oh, God will protect us. Well, all we do is put up all these symbols. No, they came to God humbly. And they confessed their sin. And they repented. And they got on their faces before God. And they worshipped Him. And they fasted before Him. And they pled with the one that they knew had the ear of God to please speak on their behalf because they didn't feel worthy enough to speak on their own. So, why did we look at all of that? You'll find out at the end. I'm going to show you, Craig, bring up the, the first slide, please. I'm going to show you a series of slides. Okay, we just did, talked about that. Bring up the next slide, please. This book that's in front of you called Today's Disciple, this was published back in the 90s. You'll notice... On the, in the, the text on the side, it says, title, Dynamics of Discipling, the year was 1979. Let me explain what's going on. Denver First Church of the Nazarene, back in 1979, was one of the few thousand-plus member congregations. Their pastor 
Donald, is it, I can't read it, Wellman, Donald Wellman, uh, put together this curriculum on how to be a Christian. And they taught this at their church. And they copyrighted it. It was called at that time, Dynamics of Discipline, or Discipling. And in order to, to facilitate the class, you had to have graduated from the class. So no one could teach the class unless they'd already gone through the class. And they had to be certified as a teacher. Well, a couple of guys from our church heard about this, and they went up to Colorado Springs, I mean to Denver, to go through the training. Then they bought the books, because you could only buy them there at the church, and they brought them back to our church, and they offered them as a, as a class for our adults in our church. At the time, it was called Dynamics of Discipling, and then that was in the late 1970s, early 80s. And then by the 90s, this became so popular that the publishing house for the Church of the Nazarene started printing it up. They renamed it called Today's Disciple, but it's still the same curriculum, same book. It is no longer in print, but you can get copies of it. I looked online this morning. It, it can cost you 10 bucks to get one. I encourage you to get one. It's amazing. Hundreds, hundreds of pages but it's all self-directed. You don't have to have a teacher. I would encourage you to get one of these. But as I was preparing for my sermon, uh, I, I forgot to tell you, in 1979, Renee and I went through this class. And God used it mightily in my own personal spiritual formation. And there were certain things that I have used even to this day about this training. Now, this week, as I was preparing for this sermon, and I was reading and, and, and meditating and thinking about this, this Ebenezer and how I was going to, what I was going to say about what, what needed to be said about this passage of Scripture, God just brought a certain chapter out of this book into my brain. And I, I can't even begin to tell you where my copy is. I mean, it's been 40 years, 45 years almost. But Renee still has hers literally on the shelf at her desk, and she refers to it regularly. And I didn't know that. And I said to her yesterday, do you happen to have a, your copy of that book? And she said, yeah, it's on my desk. It's right there. I said, oh, thank you. So I pulled it out, and I wasn't sure where I was looking because it's been 40-plus years. But I knew what I was looking for. So I literally page by page by page by page by page. Three-quarters of the way through the book, I finally find it. Page 260, I find it. But then the Lord said, I want you to read through this chapter. So I read through the chapter, and then I read through it again. And then the Lord said, this is what I want you to speak to your people this morning. I said, okay. So I am not, these aren't my words. I'm giving Donald Wellman full credit for what he taught, but you need to hear this. So we're talking about obedience. Bring up the next slide, please. If you are to become an effective disciple of Christ, you must cultivate a life of complete and immediate obedience. Just leave that screen up until I ask for the next one, please. From the beginning of history, God has had one single condition which must be met in order for a person to experience spiritual success. The one condition that has always been quick, that, that one single condition has always been quick and complete obedience. I give you the example of Abraham. 
Genesis chapter 17, the first nine verses, it says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Serve me faithfully, live a blameless life. I will make a covenant with you by which I will guarantee to give you countless descendants. At this, Abram fell face down on the ground, and then God said to him, This is my covenant with you. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. What's more, I am changing your name. It'll no longer be Abram. Instead, you will now be called Abraham, for you will be the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful. Your descendants will become many nations, and kings will be among them. I will confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you from generation to generation. This is the everlasting covenant. I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And I will give you the entire land of Canaan where you now live as a foreigner. I will give it to you and your descendants and it will be their possession forever. And I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, your responsibility in this covenant is to obey the terms of the covenant. You and all your descendants have this continual responsibility. So God said, I'm going to do, I'm going to do, I'm going to do, I'm going to do. The only thing I ask of you, Abram, is obey me. That's the only thing I'm asking. You do what I tell you to do, and I'll cover everything else for you. That's the covenant I'm making with you. And this is in perpetuity. This isn't just for you. This is for you and all of your descendants throughout all of time. I will be your God. Obey me. If you turn to Genesis 22, the first three verses, it says, Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God said, Abraham said, Yes, Lord, here I am. And God said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love so much, go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on, the, on one of the mountains, which I will show you. The next morning, Abraham got up early, saddled his donkey, took two of his servants with him along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. Abraham obeyed perfectly because his faith was perfect. And faith always precedes obedience. There is a principle that Jesus taught, and I told it to the kids, out of John chapter 14. He said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Same thing God said to Abraham, God said to the disciples. The only logical conclusion from that statement is, if you don't obey God, it's because you don't love Him. It's because, I mean, and if you don't love Him, it's because you love something else instead. And what would that be? Self. See, there's always a major problem with obedience, as long as you have a problem with the question of who controls the seat of your affection, your heart. If God is in control, there's never a question of you obeying Him. But when you are in control, and you're worried about yourself, and your family, and your things, and your 
future and your finances and your then God isn't God anymore. You are the God. Therefore, you don't instantly an obedient, instantly obey. You don't trust. You don't have faith because you're depending on your own resources. There's a person named Hannah Whitehall Smith. Go ahead and bring that next slide up, would you? Oh, I'm sorry. I skipped that one. <laughs> if you let me obey my... Hannah Whitehall Smith. She wrote a book called Christian's Secret of a Happy Life back in the 1950s. And one of the quotes that came out of it is this. Perfect obedience would be perfect happiness if only we had perfect confidence in the power we were obeying. Read that to yourself again. Perfect obedience would be perfect happiness if only we had perfect confidence in the power we were obeying. And change those last words from the power we were obeying to the one we obey. Perfect obedience would be perfect happiness if only we had perfect confidence in the one we obey. Perfect confidence is when you are so convinced of God's will that you waive all of your own personal rights in favor of pursuing God's plan. Does that sound familiar? That's perfect faith. As you recall, faith implies action, and it is the action of faith that becomes the initiation of obedience. Because without perfect faith or confidence, there can never be perfect obedience. But when there is perfect faith in God's plan for your life, followed by perfect obedience in carrying out that plan, the net result will be perfect happiness, contentment. Being at peace. This is because you are fulfilling the plan for which you were created. There can be no greater happiness than that. Living out the life God called you to, created you for, designed, gifted you to, empowered you and is, and is leading you into. If you follow that path, you will not have distress. You will have peace. You will not have unhappiness. You'll have happiness. Does that mean everything's going to be good? No. There's no promise of everything being good. But you will always have God's presence. You will always have the blessing of God. Whether or not things are great or not great. And that is where the idea of happiness is. Because see, if happiness is in your circumstances, then if, you're, if your finances fail, then you don't be happy anymore. If your health goes down, you're not happy anymore. If your relationships are trashed, you're not happy anymore. But if you keep your whole focus on God and the plan God has for you and the path God is leading you down, and that's your whole focus, nothing else can affect your happiness. Nothing else can take away the peace. But here's the problem. Bring up the next slide, please. Psalm 111.10 says, Fear of the Lord is the foundation of true wisdom. All who obey his commands will grow in wisdom. What does that, that whole mishmash of dots and arrows mean? You don't know because you've never read the book. So let me walk you through it. You'll see coming from the left-hand side of the screen some green arrows. Those green arrows are your growth in grace, the path that you're on, your path of life. And then you come across a, green, a blue dot. 
This is where God the Father reveals to you God's will. God gives you insight. Reading a scripture, reading a book, talking with a friend. I love Lillian's question. How do you know when God is talking to you? God can talk to you in any way, shape, or form. God gives you insight. Then you are progressing on this path of life until the red dot. And what the red dot is, this is the first opportunity that you are given to respond to the insight that God has given you. Now you have a choice to make. Are you going to go following the black path of disobedience, which would lead to death, spiritual death? Or are you going to follow the golden or orange path that leads to further life in God? And then as you're, if you make the choice to obey, you turn left and you go, for, go into the path that God has for you. All of a sudden, another insight happens. Now you're left with the choice. Do you, and Well, actually, you're given the insight and then you continue on the path until the opportunity to do what God has revealed to you. And you're given the choice. Do I turn away from this opportunity and go into disobedience? Or do I follow the opportunity and obey and continue on my path? And then I get hit with another insight. And then I continue in my life with God until God provides an opportunity for me to then respond to that insight. And I'm faced with a choice. Do I go into disobedience or do I obey and continue on in life until the next insight happens? Do you see the progression? But the thing that's interesting about this, it's stair-stepped. The more you obey, the higher up you go. And it fails, it's analogy, but the higher up you go represents you're getting closer to God and closer to God and closer to God and closer to God and closer to God. When you go into disobedience, you've turned your back and you're going away from God, away from God, away from God. Now, on this graph, it's not given, but there's a chance that you could have short, not shortcuts, but, but, but God intersecting and getting, trying to get you back on the, on the road. Okay, that's possible. But the reality is, if you, re, if you continue to disobey when the opportunity presents itself for you to follow the insight that God has given you, you are on a path of death. It is only through obedience that you will have the blessing of God and you will have the provision of God and you will have the relationship with God that is growing. Okay? Any questions? All right. Now, <coughs> there's another principle. Okay, we've looked at insight opportunity, any obedience. There's, before I get into that next principle, there's a song that was written by a guy who used to go to that church. I met him. He came and spoke at the layman's retreat that year in 1979. This was just before Renee and I got married. His name was Jim Jackson. Jim Jackson looked really and truly in real life. He looked like the Burger King. He had red hair, full beard, mustache, looked like the Burger King in a flannel shirt and jeans. And he wrote this song. Now, obviously, I don't have the music. I just have the words. But let me read to you the song he wrote after he went through this class himself. There is one condition for success in God's eternal plan. Obedience is the crucial test. 
That is all that God demands. He is eager to reveal each step to the one who will believe. But obedience is the requirement for the next step to receive. Lord, give me insight and opportunity to obey your blessed plan. Give me more grace to trust your word and leave the outcome in your hand. Give me wisdom that I need so much to help me through today. Insight and opportunity, but mostly help me to obey. We know that absolute obedience would give us perfect peace. When we're confined that he knows the best. I think that's supposed to be when we're convinced. I think, I, I think the autocorrect changed it. When we're convinced that he knows the best, then there comes a sweet release. But I'm tempted then to build a case and to yield to sin's disguise. But obedience is the requirement. Help me not to compromise. Lord, give me insight and opportunity to obey. To obey your blessed plan. And give me grace to trust your word and leave the outcome in your hand. Give me wisdom that I need so much to help me through today. Insight and opportunity, but mostly help me to obey. Bring up the next slide, please, Craig. Okay. If you go back to the last slide. Look at the blue dot, the green lines, and the red dot. Now go to the next slide. What we've done is pulled out one section, okay? The blue dot is the point of insight. The red dot is the point for opportunity for obedience. And that green line is the amount of time it takes for you to respond one way or the other. Wellman identified this as lag time. The period of time that elapses between the time God reveals to you what you should do and when you finally get around to doing it is what is referred to here as lag time. Perhaps this is the most subtle weapon that the enemy of our souls uses against you concerning obedience. The tragedy lies in the fact that no matter how you rationalize or dress it up, the end result is still the same. Disobedience. You may be duped into believing that being extremely cautious is a sign of wisdom or stability and maturity, when, it really, when in reality it may be nothing more than disobedience in disguise. The approach of the enemy of our souls is to prolong the lag time to the extent that you never get around to obeying what you know you ought to do. In dealing with this principle of lag time, there are two points that you need to remember. Number one, you, your awareness level must increase. Your sensitivity must become more acute so that you can more quickly determine God's will. In other words, you need to learn to hear the voice of God. Number two, you must develop the skill of cutting down the lag time to the point where knowing and obeying become almost synonymous terms. The concept of zero lag time should be your goal and it should be developed. I recognize God is speaking to me. I recognize God is calling me to whatever this is. And God gives me an opportunity to do whatever it is. That period of time 
is lag time, and we should be intentional about trying to make that as small amount of time as possible. One of the things that he used in the book that I didn't include in my notes, but I think I'm going to go ahead and add, is if you go to the very first psalm, I don't have my Bible in front. Yes, I do. I have my Bible right here in front of me. Duh. Psalm, chapter 1, verse 1. It's only six verses. We're going to read the whole thing. Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join in with mockers. But they delight in the law of the Lord. They meditate on it day and night. They are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit with each season. Their leaves never wither. They prosper in all they do, but not the wicked. They are like worthless chaff scattered by the wind. They will be condemned at the time of judgment. Sinners will have no place among the godly. For the Lord watches over the path of the godly, but the path of the wicked leads to destruction. So those first three verses of of Psalm Psalm 1 say, It is joyful for you who don't follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join in with mockers. But instead, your delight is in God's word and you meditate on it day and night. And as a result, you are fruitful. So if you want to know how can I reduce the lag time, you need to be a person of the Word of God. You shouldn't just depend on your Sunday school teacher or the person you listen to on the radio as you drive to work every day or whatever, or your pastor for being the expert in the Bible. You should be the expert in the Bible. For heaven's sakes, people, you have been given access to the Bible in so many different ways. You have it in so many different wording, I mean, so many different reading levels, in so many different forms. You can get it in paper, you can get it electronically, you can get it audibly, you can get it visually. You, of all people, should know the Word of God backwards, forwards, inside and out. There should be no time in your life when somebody says something to you that is wrong from the Bible, and you should be able to instantly say, no, 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 that's not what the Bible says. I just read that. The Bible says this. Of all people, you should know it backwards, forwards, and inside and out. And if you do that, the lag time between insight and obedience will be decreased. Why? Because as I've told the kids this morning, how do you hear from God? You read His Word. How do you hear from God? You pray. How do you hear from God? You talk with fellow Christians and seek counsel. So in some cases, the Word of God's clearly going to tell you... It's time to move. In some cases, maybe it doesn't clearly tell you that, so then you seek counsel from another person or a couple, three people. Or maybe you bring it to your pastor or your spiritual mentor. But at some point, at some point, faith comes in. Remember back what we talked about? Having perfect faith leads to perfect obedience, which leads to perfect happiness. And the last thing that you need to hear is this. Well, not the last thing. There's a couple, three more couple, five more, sorry. A life of postponed or delayed obedience produces spiritual fog. In this condition, very little is clear. Everything is gray. Everything is out of focus. And guess what, folks? God has no responsibility to reveal himself more clearly except in response to your obedient, uh, your instant obedience. He's already told you what you need for the next step. If you want to know his will more clearly, 
you need to obey him more quickly. If you don't know God's will, it is most likely due to the fact that you are delinquent in responding to the last opportunity to act on the insight he already gave you. For Christ is not the author of confusion. He is the author of light and revelation. And he has promised that he would reveal himself one step at a time to those who love him and obey him. How imperative it is for you to obey him. So let's take one last look at this Ebenezer thing from Samuel. Why did God, excuse me, what made the difference between the two events? Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 4 and 5, where God let them be decimated, destroyed. The Ark of the Covenant was gone. They lost all access to God. And 1 Samuel chapter 7, God, lightning and thunder, routes the enemy, showing the manifest presence of God among the people of God. What was the difference? Why did God remain silent in 4 and 5 and God spoke with the mighty voice of thunder and lightning in 7? There was a lag time in the obedience of the Israelites that lasted for decades. Samuel was a little boy when he heard the voice of God. And what did God tell him that night? He told him to tell Eli, get your house in order. If not, we're done. Not only you, but your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids, we're done. Get your house in order. Eli, I mean, Samuel was a little kid. Now, when 1 Samuel 7 is happening, he's in his 40s. So three decades or more have gone past, and they have not obeyed. And when the Israelites finally turn their heart to God again, God spoke through Samuel and gave the Israelites the insight that they needed. Bring me back to that slide, the stair steps, please, Craig. God gave them the in- no, 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 that, that that one. God gave them the insight, but what was the insight? He literally took them back to the beginning. You love me. You want my help. I promised it to your father Abraham back in Genesis, if you'll remember. I said, I'll do all of this. I'll be your God all, throughout all of time. I will be the God of your family. And I will provide everything, your land and your resources and everything. And all I ask of you in this, in this covenant, in this vow that we're making to each other, is I'm asking you one thing. Obey me. Set me above everything else. And what did God do through Samuel to the people of Israel, uh, yeah, people of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 7. Oh, pray for us, pray for us, pray for us. And God said, tell them, I said, obey me if they want my blessing. Literally brought them back to the point of disobedience. They had had plenty of opportunity 
to get their life right before God. They had plenty of opportunity to walk in obedience. And they chose for 30 to 40 years to not do it. And then when they finally turn back to God and cry out before him, he says, I'm here. But we're not going farther in this relationship until we deal with the very first point where you've disobeyed me. I'm bringing you right back there. So my last question to you guys, or questions to you guys, is number one, have you ever had an Ebenezer moment where you know that you know that you know that God had your back, that God did for you what needed to be done, that you could literally have erected a statue, not a statue, but a a, a standing stone saying, God, help me on that spot. If so, what was the next insight he gave you? Because if you look, the the Ebenezer moments are the red, are, are the, the yeah are the red where you're acting in obedience. But then the next step in your Christian growth, the next step in your walk with God, is that there's going to be another insight given to you of God's revealed will. So if you can say God had my back and I set up an Ebenezer, when and what was your next insight? And have you? walked in obedience with that. Did you set up another Ebenezer? And then, if so, what was the next insight? And are you walking in obedience to that insight? If so, what was the next insight? You see, it's a continual, but it's always getting closer to God, closer to God. But it always requires obedience. And your your goal, go to the next slide, Craig, please. Your goal is to reduce the lag time between insight and obedience. So my question, and, and, and the last thing that I wanted for visually, I wanted, I wanted to get is, if you turned around spiritually, if you turned around and looked back on the path you've been walking, can you see all the Ebenezers? That kind of gives you the direction of the line you're heading on. Unless God takes you in a totally different path, but you can pretty well tell. And so my question, not my question, my encouragement to you is this. Be a person of the word. Be a person who truly honors God, a person who loves God, who walks in obedience, and be aware of the fact that God is revealing his will to you at all times. The question is whether or not you're going to obey and how soon. That's your job because that's what Jesus said. Bring up that last slide, I think it is. What is the last one? When you obey my commands, John chapter 15. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love. If you want God in your life, obey him. If you want God's blessing in your life, obey him. If you want God to take care of your stuff, obey him. If you want to see God moving in power, obey him. If you don't know what his will is, obey him. If you don't know how to obey, go back to the last point where you stopped obeying him and fix that. And then walk the path that you have from there forward. He will reveal to you the next step. I promise you. Let's pray. God, our goal this morning is to obey. Our goal is to show you love. Our goal is to honor you. And I ask, Father, that you would do that through us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And empower us, give us wisdom, give us discernment, draw us close to you, Lord. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name.
Amen.